This episode is sponsored by PWC. ESG. Move from theory to action. It's time to step forward. It's smarter business for a better world for all of us. Visit www.pwc.com slash US slash ESG reporting. And this episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why the world needs better climate pledges, accelerating sustainability's digital revolution, a conversation with Amazon's circular economy maven, and why companies need to start thinking about the end of life. It's a grave situation this week on 350. It's June 25th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey is the summary Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. <laughs> it was 52 degrees this morning here in the New Jersey summer, <laughs> which is actually... I, Not so summery. I love, you know. I love that. But uh, yeah, we, we for those of you who don't live in the New Jersey area of the United States, it's uh, sort of this rolling pattern where you get really hot, humid weather into the mid-90s, and it's horrible, and you hate it, and... Then all of a sudden it rains and it's 52 degrees in the morning, which I would prefer. But anyway. It's what they say about New England weather. If, if you don't like the weather, yeah. wait a minute. Well, I think they say that about every place, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's but true. That's true. Not, not quite. But uh, how are you this week, Joel? Oh, just uh, more of the same. I, I got nothing here. But you know what? Uh, speaking of wait a minute, let's not wait a minute. Let's just get right into it. We got a lot going on this uh, this episode, so let's start with the weekend review. Well, we have to start this week with a piece that I, I don't use the word "must read" very often, very rarely, but this is a must read piece by Dr. Jonathan Foley, the executive director of Project Drawdown called Why the World Needs Better Climate Pledges. John, if you don't know him, is a, is a scientist who has uh, won lots of awards, published over 100 peer-reviewed papers, scientific papers, serves on lots of committees. He, he's got the cred, let's just say. I don't have to go through his whole CV here. But he really tears apart the whole net zero world uh, in terms of how it's being executed by companies. Net zero is critically important. I don't think anybody disagrees with that, but he talks about the fact that it's really lost its original vision and purpose, which was at a scientific one. It was really talking at the global level, not at the individual company or country level. But companies have, have, have 
taken this and run with it, as companies are so good at doing. Uh, and, and everything is, is net zero. And it's really not being done in a way where it, we're on the right trajectory. A lot of it's sort of mathematical. We uh, increase emissions here and, and offset them over here. And that's not really anything that has increased emissions is problematic, for one thing. The time horizons uh, are, you know, mid-century with not a lot of interim uh, benchmarks or, 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 land or milestones. Um, it goes on and on. There's just so many challenges. Um, and, and, and the one, I think, in some ways, most of all, is the fact that net zero commitments only pertain in almost every case to future emissions. Only a couple of companies, Microsoft being one of the rare ones that are actually looking at their historical emissions. The, the analogy, I think, is great. You know, you, it just is so on point. If a company were to dump toxic sludge into a river or a lake, the government would say two things. One, stop. Stop dumping. And number two, clean up your mess. And and, and what's going on right now with net zero commitments is, yeah, okay, we'll stop dumping eventually. But meanwhile, we dumped all this mess and no one's asking us to clean it up. So... Uh, I love this piece. I think it really is a great uh, treatise on what net zero should be that isn't and why it's so problematic. And I didn't even get into the part about carbon offsets. This goes on right. and on. you got, yep. got to read this piece. Well, and I, I love the piece because it really sets up. I, I, I'm so excited. First of all, I'm going to plug up our event next month. Um, verge net zero because this is a dialogue that we have to be having right like it, it we're, we're just they're making we're making these commitments and we're not really doing the hard work I mean that's part of the point of the of Foley's piece but we're not giving the details we're not putting the short-term things against you know projects against these goals my my um other must-read must piece I'm going to add on to this because uh, you did a great job of explaining John's but I took away two huge things from this. One is that um, companies need to be working together. And that's part of, you know, we talk about collaboration a lot, but we actually really mean it. You got to, you have to work with across industries and across supply chains. And so there's a great report um, that Boston Consulting Group did with the World Economic Forum. It came out earlier this year, I think in the January timeframe, but I, it talks about the, the work across eight different industries, the really hard to abate ones. And I see actually, you know, for for the cynic, for all the cynicism about net zero, and they're and, and deservedly so. There's some really intriguing projects going on right now. Um, like D Daimler, for example, has invested in a um, green steel company, and they're driving production into their into some of their models for. I think it's like a couple of years from now. It's not that long out. Um, and, you know, Unilever has got some new supply chain partners that, that it's, it's helping them push the, I mentioned this before, the fossil fuel surfactants. I can't, still can't say it, but for surfactants, right? Surfactants. Surfactants. Okay. But the point being um, that the supply chain work and getting each of the supply chains to really focus in on that and the net zero, a lot of the net zero commitments don't apply to the supply chain either, right? And that's, so that's kind of second point is they need to, they need to be there to get the work happening across industries and, and, and sort of having a ripple effect, right? So once you get one 
set of really key partners in an industry really working towards something, the other folks are going to adopt it. So yeah, that was kind of my big takeaway. I am so excited for this event next month because I really want, I, as a journalist, I want to be writing the right kinds of stories about this. And this sort of, John really threw down the gauntlet for our team here. <laughs> you know, what are you covering here? Well, okay, yeah, we better dig way deeper than we have been. And um, yeah, it's a great, great, great piece. Must read, everyone. And you're talking about Verge Net Zero, which is coming up July 27th, 28th, virtually, of course, for now. Um, and uh, subtitle of the, of the conference is Accelerating the Transition to a Climate Positive Future. We're going to talk a little bit more about Net Zero in a, in a few minutes with uh, Rich Madison from S&P Global. Um, but let's turn to another story uh, from our uh, intrepid uh, Washington uh, correspondent, uh, Terry Yossi, <laughs> who uh, writes a, a great monthly column called Values Proposition. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Terry wrote uh, this time, as he does from his uh, Washington uh, and policy-centric view of, of a lot of uh, environmental issues. Uh, Terry was uh, formerly uh, official at the US EPA and has been in, Was- in and around Washington for, for quite a number of decades. He talks about the, the uh, digital challenges that sustainability and environmental issues have. In other words, the, the issues, uh, the technology is not kept up with uh, the, the, the issues. And, the, and he cites, uh, you know, really succinctly as he does, um, the, the variety of, of opportunities uh, that technology can play in um, value chain decision making, decarbonizing, accounting, uh, more s- smarter and timely, more timely decision making, and and also you know why it's not working now and what we need uh, from uh, both the technology sector as well as the uh, the policy world. So I, I think this is incredibly important. And he, and he cites some great examples. Uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has a seafood traceability program for 13 species. And, and, uh, and it, it, it talks about that. EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, has a satellite that collects data on methane emissions from oil and gas operations in 15 regions around the world. Uh, and on and on. Uh, you know, we don't talk enough about... We talk about technology in the sense of, you know... Of, Climate tech, um, clean tech, uh, you know, solar, wind, EVs, and all that, but not the technology that actually lets us look at, examine, and address environmental challenges. Yeah, there's uh, so many things I could say about this because this is like my geek happy heaven place, right? <laughs> but uh, the there, there's some things that I'm watching very carefully that that really pertain to this. This piece. So first of all, the, the the relationships that need to happen across a company, the enterprise, in order to make this happen. I I don't think chief sustainability officers are talking enough to their chief information officers or their their chief procurement officers um, about the technologies and systems that are being used to run other things across the company. And that that's so important because you know that's part of where what's going to be influences to is to which of these tools get adopted. You know, there's a whole, in the climate tech space, there's a whole array of software applications coming out that are focusing on carbon accounting and helping companies get a handle on this. And I know, Joel, I think, I mean, you've you've seen probably several different waves of these kinds of tools in the past, but there's a really serious um, high number of companies, including 
um, you know, the likes of Salesforce that are investing in these in these types of tools. There was one um, that I'm writing about for next week uh, called Circular, and they're they're helping trace. Um, you know, rare earths and different materials across supply chains. And they're working with some pretty huge companies. Um, like they've got a project they're standing up with Boeing. Uh, they work with Volvo. So there's, and Salesforce is an investor. And, you know, so a lot of the big software companies are starting to invest in these tools. And that means somewhere down the road, they're going to be buying these tools and they're going to be going into the chief information officers, you know, domain. So it, it's it's important for that. The other thing is is um, all the data that's coming out from public sources that that um, there really hasn't been a good strategy for getting arms around. You need this public data. You need to know actually that it's credible. Um, but with all these satellites and so forth that are going to be spitting out information about things like Amazon deforestation, um, you know, is that is that water uh, supply going to be lasting? What what projections you can do on that, and so forth. That that's going to be so important for to go back to those net zero goals, for meeting those goals, for pro- applying science, and for applying true operational um, discipline around them. So yeah, great piece. Thank you, Terry, for making my job easier and and helping us say the same thing I try to say sometimes. Yeah, but, but love it. But just to be clear, Heather, uh, Terry is really writing about the second thing you talked about, not the firm mm-hmm. level, company level stuff. That's there's exactly. a lot of great technology totally yep. uh, going on there mm-hmm. that that we you are writing about and and we'll be seeing mm-hmm. more and more about. But this is really at the macro mm-hmm. level. How do we get a grip exactly. on what's going on and 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 you know around the world from all the different hundreds or thousands of academic and government institutions and some private ones as well any maps out you know there's the, the data exists in a lot of different formats and it needs to be integrated there's a lot of gaps of what we don't know there's no standardized uh, of how we think about this stuff or govern this stuff who who owns it how is it collected how is it just who has access to it and then of course the privacy and cyber uh, crime kinds of issues um, really interesting. So I, I think that, uh, you know, for, for anyone who is a data or tech geek, this is another piece that's, that's really worth perusing and, uh, and understanding what's possible. We're going to continue talking about net zero, uh, and particularly the financial piece of that. And there's no better person to talk about that than our good friend from across the pond, Richard Madison, CEO of S&P Global True Cost and the Chief Product Officer of Sustainable One at S&P Global. Hey, Rich. Hi, Joel. Good to good to hear from you. Always lovely to chat. Uh, you are our go-to person on all things uh, ESNG. And one of the things that's sort of interesting is this uh, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero G fans, it seems to be uh, credited. And of course, Glasgow is the site of, of COP26 coming up in November. And this is uh, chaired by Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England. Uh, what's this uh, another Net Zero Alliance? Talk about the G fans. Yeah, G fans, uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Is an, is an alliance of alliances, is what I would say, for the finance sector, um, as if we needed more acronyms and alliances. But uh, <laughs> it's essentially an amalgamation at the moment of the uh, Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, um, the Net Zero Asset Manager Alliance, and um, the uh, Net Zero Alliance, Net Zero Banking Alliance. So you've got three alliances 
covering uh, the asset management industry, asset owners like pension funds, and also uh, banks. And there's a lot of organizations signed up to that. In total, it's about 70 trillion of assets under management uh, that are run by that group. Um, and they've all made pledges uh, under those kind of sub-alliances, if, if you like, um, to be net zero. Um, and what's interesting about it is the pledges go uh, or will go beyond the ones that we have seen so far. So the what the pledges typically that we've seen so far are, are sort of around a, a 2050 long-term target to be net zero, and often, in some cases anyway, a little short on the details of what you do kind of tomorrow and the day after. What, the, what this group has to do within 18 months is make some very specific announcements about targets in the nearer term, as well as the, you know, to, to, to be linked to their long-term net zero targets. So to give you an example, if you're an asset manager, um, what you're going to have to do is you're actually going to have to describe the percentage of the assets that you manage um, that will be net zero by 2025 and 2030. So that that kind of thing is, I mean, the percentages can be small, it can be large. Obviously, it's up to the organizations to determine that. But I think that level of transparency is interesting because it's going to drive marketing of funds that are net zero funds over other funds. Uh, so those organizations, in order to really ramp this up in a meaningful way, they're going to actually have to develop net zero funds, and then they're going to have to market those funds to the world um, in preference to many of the other funds they may be marketing. And so that's going to be an interesting challenge, I think, for asset managers in particular, as they work towards their own net zero commitments, which are, after all, really about managing other, other people's money, um, as well as uh, their own direct operational commitments. Okay, so we've been talking about the, some of the problems with net zero, the time horizons, the lack of standardization, the fact that so much of it is only forward-looking and not historical emissions. Um, how do we know that this is going to be the right approach to net zero that's really going to get as much emphasis on zero as on net? Uh, so it's not just about offsets, it's really about reducing absolute emissions. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I think there's massive scrutiny on the finance sector. And so that will help ensure that there's some credibility around some of these commitments. Um, you've got central banks doing a lot of stress testing. The French central bank, just on a voluntary basis, did some stress testing of the French economy. It had some serious um, uh, impacts actually on banking and insurance. Um, and so there's a lot of scrutiny, I think, on how banks and asset managers are making progress on de-risking their portfolios. So that's coming from their supervisors, their regulators, if you like, anyway. And, and that's the reason why these commitments are sort of coming at the same time as there is both pressure coming from those who regulate the industry and also pressure in terms of transparency. A lot of these organizations are going to have to report on the extent to which they are aligned with the future. For example, in Europe, banks have to comply with the uh, um, sustainable finance disclosure regulations and also with the EU taxonomy requirements. So they're going to have to do things like disclose the extent to which um, the companies that they lend money to are, are driving um, green financing in some way uh, or have green revenues. And I'm sure you covered that elsewhere. But I think that you know, with this heightened transparency, heightened scrutiny by regulators, 
and their own commitments, you have a triumvirate of uh, pressure that I think will drive a lot of change. And you know, we've seen a little bit of that already. So S&P Global Market Intelligence shows that the five largest US public banks reduced their exposure to energy and utilities in 2020 compared to 2019. So it's not something that's kind of widely publicized by those banks, but they did do that. The picture is actually similar among European banks, but actually the opposite in Asian banks. So we're seeing those that are leading net zero commitments and are actually really pushing things very hard and being very public. They are actually starting to reduce their exposure to fossil fuels, um, albeit at the moment in a, in a relatively smaller way. Um, but the change is happening, uh, certainly amongst the largest financial institutions. So can a group like GFANS uh, turn around the Asian banks to uh, you know, cut back on fossil fuel investment and you know, invest more in the good stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's two things. First of all, nothing like a bit of peer pressure. <laughs> I think that's going to help. And then secondly, let's not forget the Asian countries have also committed to net zero. And so banks in those regions um, are noting the fact that their governments have made commitments that they may not internally be in alignment with right now. And so I'm sure a lot of Asian banks are actually looking at uh, net zero as well. The, the other thing is, I think there's a lot of interest in Asia in carbon markets in general, and carbon markets are going to be critical. Uh, they're going to play a critical role in getting to net zero, because at the end of the day, we're going to need some kind of offset market for those irreducible amounts of carbon emissions or those hard to abate sectors. Um, and so uh, Asian markets in particular are very interested in carbon markets because they can actually fund some of their transition through carbon markets. Um, so there's an opportunity and a risk that they see in a net zero commitment for sure. So this is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, obviously a reference to COP26 in Glasgow. What's going to happen with GFANS in November? I think it continues in the sense that um, the net, these net zero alliances are not going to disappear. And in fact, I think it's going to get bigger. So um, as we hear, there are other groups seeking to join GFANS. Um, other other players that might be linked to the finance industry, such as insurance industry, for example, is assembling and coalescing its own group. And there are a few other players as well. So I think that alliance will get bigger, not smaller, and will continue to grow in momentum. There is also, you know, Mark Carney, who is one of the leaders of the GFANS, is also one of the leaders of the voluntary carbon market. So I think we're going to start to see some linkages as well between different initiatives, hopefully. And uh, we'll see where we go with it all. It should and be very interesting. And, and finally, Rich, uh, what are the implications here for a company that doesn't happen to be in the fossil fuel business? Uh, it's just a, a, a large company that's uh, trying to find its way through the net zero thicket. Is there something that this will change or ha make them think differently about? Well, if you think about it, uh, if you're a company and you haven't made a net zero commitment and I don't know, your top 10 shareholders have, then I would I would you know, be looking to make a net zero com commitment pretty soon. And secondly, what you have to do is, is at least walk lockstep with your investors. If your investors are making big commitments to reduce their emissions, shift their portfolio and their assets to net zero, it, it would benefit you to do the same at the same pace, at least. So let's say your biggest investor has said that it's going to shift I don't know, 10% uh, of its funds will be net zero by 2025 and another 30% or 50% by 2030, 
then maybe you want to be thinking about how that looks for your company so that you can at least kind of match their level of ambition and appeal to, to, to you know, and, and be careful that you're not going to be excluded from their funds in some way. I think that's the, the danger. One thing we really want to watch for in all of this is as these large organizations start to drive these commitments that we don't see um, what's been coined as brown shifting, which is essentially, um, you know, fossil fuel based assets being divested and sold to um, uh, parts of the market that are less transparent and more opaque, like private, private equity. equity yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll see what happens. From greenwashing to brown shifting, uh, so many things to think about. But uh, G fans, we'll, we'll we'll keep tracking that. Uh, Rich Madison is the uh, CEO of S and P Global True Cost and the Chief Product Officer at Sustainable One at S and P Global, and my go-to source for ESG and sustainable finance. Thanks so much, Rich. It's always great to talk. We'll check in again. Thanks so much, Joel. It's been a pleasure. All right, Heather, once again, we've got some clips from Circularity 21. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, doled them out over a couple different episodes. Uh, what do you got for us this week? Okay, we have four different individuals who we've got, we're going to highlight this week, starting with Catherine Coleman Flowers, uh, the founder and director for the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. I spoke with her about uh, wastewater management and, and, and you know, sanitary sanitation issues um, and and how that aligns with with uh, social justice and environmental justice issues it was a, a, a she's doing such great work and here she talks about how business leaders can build a more inclusive approach to planning and constructing sustainable infrastructure the first thing that needs to happen we need to shift the engineering paradigm the engineering paradigm should include people from these impacted communities sitting at the table to help design the solutions and I think that's that's part of the environmental justice approach. But I think it's also the best way to come up with long-term solutions because generally the people that are engineering or designing solutions aren't working in these communities. So when they fail, they don't know why they fail or how it impacts families. And oftentimes they dismiss it and say, oh, it's because you you weren't you couldn't maintain the system. But we also have to keep in mind that there's some, some factors now that were not around five, 10 years ago. That, that are influencing this. And the people that are suffering should be the ones sitting at the table. So what we're planning to do through our organization is we're bringing together collaborators of their business people out there that are interested in being part of our collaboration. We're bringing people from these communities together with people from uh, hopefully the Department of Defense and NASA to come up with ways to treat wastewater to drinking water quality. We like to retire sewers, period. Mm -hmm. Because sewers at the end of the day end up in rivers and streams and cause fish kills and algae blooms and contaminate water. So if we can treat drinking water to, we can treat, treat sewers to drinking water quality and out of space, why can't we do that here on earth? And that's, that's our goal as the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. And that's our solution to the problem. I'm inspired by Katherine Johnson. Katherine Johnson was the woman who helped put, you know, who helped to to, to, to launch NASA's program in the first place, and who just got credit for that. Yeah. So I think that we can do the same thing and we're pulling together the brightest minds to, to, to shepherd that cause and hopefully inspire other people around the world to do the same thing. 
there were some great conversations uh, throughout the week about the role of consumers in, in the circular economy and how their experience really matters for things like recycling. I mean, it matters for everything, right? But if we don't change the, the experience of how a consumer buys things, then we're not going to really make make much progress. And there's some two great presentations on that. The first is from Joe McLeod. He's a self-described engineer and founder of And End, which is a consulting firm that focuses on sort of better consumer endings for products. And here he talks about the consumer offboarding experience. The ideal of circularity in, in, in a circular life cycle is between the consumer life cycle on one side and industrial life cycle on another. And that's great. And it's a self-feeding prophecy. But what's really going on is we, we talk about all other aspects of it, but we very much forget the consumer experience. This, the consumer experience, to don't forget, is driving the onboarding all the time in very passionate, sophisticated way. And we've got this enormous gap at offboarding in the consumer life cycle that is barren of emotion and meaning, which means the consumer end up being abandoned, uninstructed. And this is where the damage and the chaos is starting to get there. So what we there's this gap at the end which is emerging. So let's think about this gap. This gap is a big problem and it's the consumer offboarding experience. And there's four characteristics in this gap. The first one is that the relationship breaks. And in that breakage, the assets from that relationship fall to the feet of society. The second thing is asset definition is lost. So as a consumer throws something into the waste stream, the definition of that waste, uh, that item, which was very rich and meaningful to the consumer, instantly becomes neutralized in a, not neutralized, but it becomes irrelevant in terms of its identity. <clears throat> and, th and that's a big problem in terms of consumers' understanding of boarding. And the actors and actions are anonymized. So the identity of the provider and the consumer as, um, as the consumer throws things into the waste stream or removes them, something into the waste stream, their identity is removed and relinquishes them of any relationship with this thing, which is a big problem in consumerism. And it means that consumers can't get engaged in this stuff. And lastly, routes to neutralizing become blurred for the consumer offboarding. So simple things like biological matter, like for an apple, for example, that erodes, consumers understand that. But as soon as we get into very simple product materials like a plastic bag, that becomes increasingly complicated with infinite probability uh, possibilities going on thereafter. And we need to correct that at consumer offboarding. So let's talk about the consumer life cycle for a moment. There's a load of stuff that I do around engineering and designing consumer offboarding experiences. These are th these are eight types of endings that consumers commonly experience in the offboarding, um, the consumer life cycle at the end. Now, these are really important to start designing around instead of the sort of passive things that we're designing for consumers at the end of the consumer life cycle currently. We also need to think of phases because the consumer goes through certain experience phases that we need to start thinking about so we can grab hold of damaging materials and neutralize them in collaboration with the consumer offboarding. And lastly, I just want to finish on this. What we really need to do is build 
engineering experiences that should be consciously connected to the rest of the experience through emotional triggers similar to advertising that are actionable so the consumer can get inside and start really playing with these things and doing something about it and these need to be done in a timely manner so we don't have houses full up with old products or so we get these things out of the out of those ecosystems and back into being neutralized properly with a provider and then there was another great talk, Joel, from Natalie Hallinger. She's the director of behavioral science for Literati. And here she talks about how companies can encourage consumers to buy into circular business models. A good way to think of that is to think of it as building a house for the behavior to live in. When you just take one or two behavioral change tools and apply them like a nudge or gamification, it's like sending the behavior on a trip to a hotel. It's new, it's beautiful, it's fun, but it's short term. You build a house for that behavior with all of the supports, using all of the behavior change tools at your disposal. You give it a place to stay. You give it a place to rest and be comfortable and thrive. Consider that when you're looking at the behavior change strategies you're deploying. Are you making a house for this behavior to live in years down the road? Or are you giving it a short-term pit stop? And then next year, you're looking for a new strategy. Again, these behavioral scientists, they've got the training. They've got the experience. They know what to do. Allow them to use their expertise. Allow them to stretch beyond whatever the popular behavior change strategies are talked about on LinkedIn and in a couple of TED Talks. Understand that it's a big lift. There's a saying that the apology needs to be as loud as the offense. If people are displaying behavior that's not helpful to your product or industry, you need to overcome the learning and habits they've already developed with your behavior change strategies, right? Think of all of the supports they need to maintain it and put in place partnerships to make sure that happens. If your behavior change strategy isn't working, remember that it's, wedge, it's like a wedge strategy. You need to build it up and give it time and give it space to bloom and use science to learn from your mistakes. I think behavioral scientists will keep having a moment if you give us room to bloom. One of the great sessions during Circularity 21 was our good friend George Bandy, who uh, we first met when he was over at Interface and uh, running sustainability there. Then he went over to another carpet company, Mohawk, and now is driving circular economy at a little Seattle company called Amazon. Um, so uh, he's in a, let's say, prime position to think to be influential there. And uh, he had a, a great conversation with uh, Lauren Phipps at Circularity 21. Uh, what did you queue up for us, Heather? First of all, I have to say it was so hard <laughs> to pick just a couple highlights because this was, he is so giving of his, his wisdom and such a, um, just a really rich information that he, he was sharing. But I picked two highlights. I did it. I actually picked two. Um, <laughs> the first is, uh, is where George was talking about how circular economy processes 
can help break down operational silos and, and really become a foundation for a mo more holistic approach to corporate sustainability, sort of writ large. And here's what he had to say about that. I think that the vision for where we're going as it relates to circular economy is, is becoming more encompassing. So um, I think before it was very linear in the way that we even thought about sustainability. Everybody had their specific area of expertise. I think what circular economy does is it builds those bridges between the things that we had not thought about in terms of their connectivity in a different way, right? Um, thinking about the impact of the materials that come through an organization and what can be recycled, what can't be recycled, how you increase post-consumer recycled, connecting procurement, connecting end of life, looking at all of these things in a different way, looking for outsourcing opportunities to create platforms, to build education, to build infrastructure, to allow these things at a scalable level, to be able to look at how we're able to manage the resources that come throughout organizations that we work with and partner with, and then having influence over people that we do business with. So I think that you know the connectivity between that and the climate and looking at reducing those things that we can reduce uh, from looking at materials in a different way or creating uh, closed loop networks in a different way or looking for ways to generate resources and create um, opportunities for businesses to partner with us. I think that those things are ways that we're going to see uh, more and more connectivity across sustainability overall, rather than looking at these silos of sustainability strategy that are kind of um, put into uh, containers and not connected to these other parts of the organization. Because digging too deep into one thing can make you miss the connectivity to how it impacts others is where we make a lot of mistakes. So I think that circular economy gives us a more robust view of how things connect with each other across multiple aspects of the sustainability spectrum. And then the second thing I wanted to queue up was his just profound thoughts about the importance of legacy and how you are creating your strategy and what will you what will you leave behind in your organization how will that legacy evolve and continue to grow after you're gone and here is uh, George Bandy on legacy you know my father left a legacy he was a uh, uh, house of representatives and also a um, a minister and, and and one of the things that he taught me growing up is having responsibility for generations that you haven't seen. And it was very difficult for me to understand when I was young as to what he meant by that. But the older I've gotten, the more I've began to think about um, how do I create what's called a living legacy? So how do you live in a way so that people are able to see courage and genius in you? Sometimes you're gonna make some mistakes, sometimes you're gonna fall, but I think that one of the things that sometimes gets lost along this sustainability journey is, is that we're human and we're going to make some mistakes. But if you make mistakes trying to do the right thing, I think that people will give you a little bit of grace in terms of how you're able to move the needle. I think that success from any organization or any individual as it relates to leaving a legacy is greatly dependent upon the people that you work with. I think building great teams, respecting people's ability, understanding their talent, investing in others, uh, builds a system that allows the system to be able to continue on. Every organization that I work for or work with, they still have systems in place that generate sustainability above and beyond. You don't know what types of impacts each individual left and went back home with and created as they left the organization or moved to another organization. I think that that's where true legacy is actually being built and creating diverse legacies is critically important. You know, I always use this poem, you know, by Benny Mays, we have only just a minute. 
only 60 seconds in it, forced upon us, can't refuse it. We didn't seek it, we didn't choose it, but it's up to us to use it. Must suffer if we lose a given account, if we abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but our eternity is in it. So I always use that as a, as a measuring rod for, am I actually giving as much as I can to whoever I can to benefit the greater good? And I think that being at this organization is gonna give me a platform to be able to do that with the collaborative partners and working with uh, the leadership that's in front of us, Kara and, and, and Jeff Bezos and the leadership team that's there is going to give us an opportunity to really do some great stuff. So I'm humbled at the opportunity and grateful. And we hope that we're able to do some things that actually manifest into greatness as it relates to circularity for our organizations and beyond. As we have shamelessly self-promoted for the last month, we published our sixth annual cohort of Rising Stars in the Sustainability Profession, the 30 Under 30 Project. And we have more highlights from the individuals featured this year. Two more clips. Brock Batacchio, he is the founder of Planetary Hydrogen, and he talks about why he is an entrepreneur. And Eric Landry, climate change specialist at GRESB, on why he actually loves being a generalist. This is the second to last batch. Enjoy. I'm Brock Patacchio. I'm uh, the co-founder at Planetary Hydrogen. One of my biggest motivators is the fact that over the next century, we as a, as a humanity will have to remove up to, I would say, a trillion tons of CO2 from our atmosphere or at least hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 from our atmosphere out of the air we're breathing right now. We're past the point of just, you know, installing solar panels or, and changing our energy systems to be carbon neutral. We need to go to carbon negative and we need to radically accelerate the development of technologies that pull carbon out of the air and store it safely and permanently. And we're nowhere near that right now. You know, there's some projects like carbon engineering who uh, are, are making, you know, great strides towards building direct air capture facilities, but we're nowhere near the scale. You have to imagine mountains of CO2 that we need to pull out of the atmosphere. And, you know, where I come into this a bit and, and why someone would want to read my profiles, because I'm on, I'm on a mission to remove uh, a billion tons of, of CO2 out of the atmosphere by 2035. And that's honestly a drop in the bucket to where we need to be. It sounds crazy, but that's a drop in the bucket. And I'm someone that's, you know, on the front lines, bringing forward an innovative technology that hasn't existed before. And I'm really trying to bring this to market to affect that change and make an impact. And I don't think this will be my, my last company either. I think this is something that I want to continue doing and accelerating innovative technologies like this for the long run. And, um, and to, you know, uh, eventually pass off a better earth than we live in today. Hi, I'm Eric Landry, and I'm the climate change specialist at GRESB. I, I, I am a jack of all trades. It's the interconnections that I find really, really interesting. And so, you know, the more fields I, I can cover, um, the more I can bring insights from those fields into other fields. There was a book, it's called Generalists. And it's about, you know, in a world of specialization, what the kind of 
co-benefits of generalization can 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 mean and and so this is kind of how i identify i'm not the best in anything but i'm pretty good in almost everything i've been lucky enough to interact with the specialists wherever they are and i've been lucky enough to to, to interact with the best of the best i'm i'm i i'm in a very privileged position where I, I'm surrounded by fantastic people. There's the there's the five five monkeys theory. Each each monkey is is a is basically a combination of the five monkeys it hangs out with most. And so when you're surrounded by just brilliant and interesting and caring people, it rubs off on you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll learn more about them. We love your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be declaring our independence next week, taking a week off, but we'll be back on July 9th with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by PWC. Get visibility into how your ESG disclosure process measures against your industry peers while you visualize your progress over time. Visit pwc.com slash US slash ESG Pulse. And this episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.